When I was at CBS Network, all they gave you was $38 a day to eat. Oh, God. $38? He didn't tell me he gets $38 a day to eat. The struggle is real. God, man, they give me $38 a day to eat, then they put me up in the, in the, in the, in the four seasons. It's like, well, okay, I tipped the guy. Now what am I going to eat? Now I'm screwed. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Broadcasting in Black and White, brought to you by Bib Media. As always, I am Joe Masiri. Our co-host, Kenton Young, will be joining us in just a minute as we sat down for our podcast this week. But before we get started, I want to tell those who may be listening for the first time a little bit about what Broadcasting in Black and White tries to accomplish. We created this podcast to try and help break down the broadcasting industry, and we've done that by talking to people who are in the industry right now. We've spoken to reporters, producers, actors, directors, you name it, but anybody who's pushing the envelope to try and find out what the future of this industry will hold for everyone involved. And to that end, our guest on this podcast was Wayne Friedman. Wayne, for those of you who don't know, is a reporter for KGO out in the Bay Area, and to call him an Emmy-winning reporter would be a bit of an understatement. Wayne actually won more than 50 Emmys before he decided to retire from the Emmy Awards and give other people a chance to take home a trophy. He is also an author. He wrote the book, It Takes More Than Good Looks to Succeed in Television News Reporting, And that book is widely read by college students across the country. In fact, I read that book when I was in college and have read it several times throughout my career. If you haven't read it and are in television news, I highly recommend it no matter what your role in the news department might be. Uh, It has helped me several times get through some stale moments, find inspiration, and there's always a tip in there that you can pick up on that you may have forgotten in everyday practice when you're out in the field. Um, Wayne was kind enough to share some new tips with us that aren't in the book and his outlook on broadcast news right now, which might be a little bleak to some, but really speaks to how much of a passion journalists have for the work that they do. He also shared with us the two most important words that every journalist needs to ask, And I think he had as much fun with this podcast as we did uh, because he spoke with us for more than two hours. So because it was so long, we've decided to break this up into two different parts. This will be part one. We'll have part two out next week. And forgive us for the quality a little bit on this podcast. We tried doing it via FaceTime and it seemed to break up. A couple times there, but we think it's pretty clear, and and although some parts might be a little difficult to understand, we think you'll be able to get through it. So without any further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Wayne Friedman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us today. I want to talk about what you're doing right now out in San Francisco and kind of how it compares to other points in your career. Can you take me through basically what a basic day is in your career right now? Oh, there is no such thing as a basic day except that it's long. <laughs> um, I uh, wake up in the morning and walk into the kitchen and 
sit in this very spot where we're talking right now. I look briefly at what's happening, look at our web page, I look at any local newspapers. If I if there's nothing I have cooking, and most of the time I don't have anything cooking because we're um, we're at the beck and call of our bosses. The day begins around seven fifteen in the morning, seven thirty. I'll check and see what stories might be cooking, what might be going on. And then I, by 7.30, I'm on the phone to the assignment desk and uh, saying, what do you got? Or here's what I got. Here's what I want to do. What do you want to do? Uh, what's pressing? And then uh, they have a meeting on the phone at 7.45. And by 8 o'clock, I know about half the time I know what I'm doing and where I'm going. Most of the time that does not mean driving to the station. That means hopping in my car and going to the story wherever it is, which could be anywhere in a 150-mile radius. But generally, uh, I stay in the North Bay. Um, what's the day like? Uh, we have a 4 o'clock broadcast, and a 5 and a 6, and a midday, and you know, on a busy day, I may be on at midday, on again with a package at 4, maybe at 5, or maybe 4 and 6, or maybe 5 at 6. Everything is likely to be live. Uh, and um, I'm a guy who used to be a you know a feature reporter at heart, and still am. But for the most part, what I do with these guys now is uh, first block or lead stories pretty much every day, five days a week, at least two stories a day. Now, how did you, I guess, make that transition from feature reporter to lead reporter, and how do you feel about that seemingly uh, a little discouraged based on your tone? I, I didn't make that transition. They made that transition. Mm. Just another adjustment. I mean, if you want to succeed in this business, you need to keep changing, keep adapting, keep adapting, keep adapting, keep adapting, keep adapting, keep adapting. Say that 20 times. Yeah. And then do it. Because um, this business keeps changing and your bosses keep changing. You know, the guy that hires you for this job may not be there in six months. You know, it, it's very easy to impress the guy that hired you. It's not so easy to impress the person who replaces the person who hired you. Or the person who replaces the person who replaced the person who hired you. <laughs> you, have, you, you know ever been, I, have you ever been fired in your career? Um, no. Oh. I've been laid off. Okay. Once from PBS, but never I've never been fired. I only got suspended once, and I probably deserved it. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what was that for? Wait. No, I take it back. I got I got fired from being the sports anchor at KOMU TV. The news anchor for the news or sports anchor at KOMU TV in Columbia, Missouri. I got I got fired from that job as a graduate school student because we were working so hard. I slept through the newscast. Oh wow! wow. But that was yeah, what am I? Twenty two years old, and that was and that was more of a school thing. But no, I've never I've never been fired. Um, and got any wood? <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, I do have a question. I thought I was young when I started in this business. You care to share what age you were when you started? Uh, I thought I was well, young that, at seventeen. So you tell where you mark start start. start. Uh, I wrote my first newspaper column, regular newspaper column for what is now the uh, Los Angeles Daily News in nineteen sixty nine at fourteen years old. Wow, wow. What uh, was it about? this then that made you want to get into it as a 14-year-old kid in ninth grade? Well, they were, they were starting a school newspaper in the ninth grade, and I was a new kid in the school, and I said, wait a minute, they're starting a school newspaper, I'm not on it? <laughs> <laughs> so you said, I'm going to go write for the LA Daily News? <laughs> it's like, screw this. <laughs> you know, it was, no, it was junior high school, 
and they had this deal with the local newspapers who at the time were fostering young journalists. And this one newspaper would take a column from every junior high school and every high school once a week. And um, so we go in there, and I don't know anybody in the class, and they're all assigning beats, and one kid gets the principal's office, and somebody else gets the nurse's office, and somebody else gets beat. <laughs> and then they'll say, well, who, who wants to write the column about the, the school for the, what was then the Valley News and Green Sheet? And I, and I said, oh, I guess I will, not knowing that, gee, this is the best beat of them all because I can take all this stuff and write about all this stuff. And the funny thing was, I looked at all these other columns from other kids, right? And they were like, really, they looked like public relations messages from the, from the school district. But from the very beginning, if you go back through those columns, I was a feature reporter. I would do stuff like, I would sit with the bad kids waiting to go in for the dean of discipline to get swats. Right? Yeah. I'd sit there, well, what do you expect when Mr. Mason sees you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> all this, but I wrote about life in junior high school and kept that up all the way then through high school. That was one day it was the nurse's office. One day it's a, a day in the life of the dean of discipline. Another day it was, uh, you know, uh, running laps in PE. You know, there was a lot of mundane stuff in there too, but it was, it was just about life in junior high school. But writing about life <laughs> seems life. to be your niche. I mean, you do it in a way that, not a lot of other people can or have done uh, throughout your career. Is is there well, some insight that you have? <laughs> well, I just write about what's going on. I mean, how much can I say and how much can I not say? You know, the theory is that um, most of the daily news we cover is forgotten tomorrow. But I've always believed that if you can find something in that daily news that tells you about life, then maybe you can make it more memorable. That's not always easy, especially with some of the stuff we cover now. I mean, half the time these days I cover weather or rain or high waves. I mean, they're really into weather right now. That's what they want. Weather has become breaking news. I guess their theory on it is that everybody talks about the weather. So I go out there and do stories every day, not as a weatherman, but as a person in the weather, trying to find life and, tr and trying to find, you know, something a little bit different, you know, and that, that's not always easy to do. That's what sometimes, sometimes, I mean, there was a line the other day, though. There's, you got to find something in the, every one of these stories that, that, that makes you happy when you go home and you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day. So there was a, we were in, um, on December 24th, the day before Christmas, we had high rains, high tides in Marin County and Mill Valley, and there's a uh, there's an area where people walk across the the the, the water. It's um it's a it's a shoreline, it's a walkway, and the water the tides were so high that as we looked out across the walkway, it, people appeared to be the, the walkways were actually underwater, and they were still sloshing through, but it looked like they were walking on water. Wow! Right? <laughs> and I, my photographer, I said, shoot that. He said, it looks like they're walking on water. I said, yeah, it looks like they're walking on water. So, late, and that, and that was that, so later on, I'm thinking, well, how are you going to say that they're walking on water without saying they're walking on water? And all of a sudden, I don't, I don't know where this came from. Remember the movie Being There? I well, know. Peter Sellers walks across the lake. Well, that became a line. It was Mill, the line that became something like, it was Mill Valley's Being There moment. Mm -hmm. 
Now, maybe one in ten people got that line, but boy, when they got that line, they really got that line. That's right. That's a 10% line, and if you write a 10% line every day to a different 10% of the people, you're going to have a lot of people who remember who wrote it because you're, you're writing to them. Uh, so how do I write about life? I just kind of try to hone in on how people are experiencing, how people are reacting. You know, if you get to the why, uh, and if you look for the emotion and you look for the visceral thing, you know, you're going to be all right. But writing about life every day, it's not easy. All right. So I, I have a – go ahead. Yeah. I had a couple questions coming out of that. All right. So when you write to that 10% though, and if your management isn't in that 10% that gets that – did they come to you and say, what are you doing? You can't write like that or nobody understands that? Do you get that from them? Dude, we write so fast and they're so swamped that they barely have time to look at that copy. There are other people's copies that they'll look at before they look at my copy. Mm. I, I get the inside strike on that. Oddly enough, after writing that line, a person in management wrote me a note saying he got it. So it... it he wasn't news management, but he was management at the TV station. He, he got it completely. He says, great Hal Ashby line in that story. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, no, they don't, they don't give me a bad time on the copy too much. Yeah. Not very. But you've earned it. Like you said, you've got that inside strike. Oh, we're just in a hurry, man. Yeah. We're just slamming. I mean, we, we have, you know, we got two and a half hours to fill. Three and a half hours? I lose track in the afternoon. We are, we're just, they got, these guys, they got to worry about graphics. They got to worry about stacking. They got to worry about other reporters. They got to worry about stuff that's falling through. If they have time, they will look at my copy. By the time they look at my copy, it's usually too late to change it. So has it always been that way or when was their transition? When did this start becoming where they're so swamped? There's so much news to fill. It's like the frog in the boiling pan. I don't know. <laughs> I like to think of it as a respect factor. You know, they don't check there your stuff. There might be that. There might be, there might be a little bit of that, but you can't bank on that. Yeah. You're as good as your last story every day. They, and believe me, they do catch, and every so often I'll, I'll goof up on a name or something, and they catch that, and I hear about it. It's, it's hard to be perfect. I'd well, rather they Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to be perfect is an understatement, I think, in there. Here's, here's the deal. A manager says to me once, I'd love to, to, to look over your script and critique it, but it makes no sense until we see it. <laughs> and Which it's true. It. That sounds like a Yogi Berraism right there. It makes no sense until we see it. I said, thank you very much. That's true. But the other thing that's interesting here is that the whole writing style has changed. The way I talk about writing in the book, I mean, who has time to write like that anymore? Right. I write in five or six minutes. And, and it's not like I sit there and plan it out. I log the bites, log, the, log a few of the shots, think about basically how is it going to begin, how is it going to end, and then I sit down and usually it's the four, and I don't want to do my best story for four because we have a bigger audience at five or six, but inevitably the four is always going to be better than the five or six because it's the freshest version. I just sit down and start writing. They come up with it with line one, then a sound bite, then something playing out of the sound bite, then a second line, then another sound bite, then a twist and a little background, and then the last line pops out. Okay? And then you write the last line. And if it's a bad last line, well, then you've got to read it as if it's a really good last line itself. Mm -hmm. Make him a believer. 
five yeah. to six minutes. That's um, that's unheard of. Well, not unheard not of, really. but you know, it's not, not common. Really. Not common. Yeah. No. Well, you know, look, it takes you know, ten minutes maybe to log it too. On top of that, I mean, we work so fast these days that a lot of times I don't even have time to look at the story before it goes out uh, out the pipe. And even if you do, it's not like you have time to make changes on a lot of time on a lot of basis. Oh, I asked to make, you know, I used to make changes all the time. I, I used to be the guy that could sit there in the booth back in the days of tape, which was a whole different way of editing, by the way. Back in the days of tape, when you you lay it down, it was linear and you were done. It was like walking a, walking a high wire, right? Once it's in, once it's down, it's gone, unless you want to make a, a dub. And if you make a dub, then you lose a generation that starts looking muddy and you don't want to do that. Um, I could sit there and rewrite a track to fix a track that was bad and if it had to be eight seconds and thirteen frames, I could do that. Wow! In three takes, I could I could read to the frame, and this may, maybe was six minutes to air. And the editors would say, "You're crazy!" I'd say, "Look, go, God, I got." It. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd run down the hall and I'd read the damn thing, and he'd be looking at me and he'd be sweating bullets, and I'd be sweating bullets. But I knew that I would have it right. And it was like, and I could I would read right to the cakes, right to the shots, right to the frame give it two or three times and if we were you know in trouble we'd you know cut a little spot out and take a couple frames out between breasts but generally you write it right to the frame we don't have to do that anymore in linear editing because um we can go back and fix it i fixed a line the other day i fixed a word and got the hairy eyeball from my photographer dean smith he goes why are you fixing that line i said because it's not accurate huh it was a story about uh, traffic and parking, and I called a restaurant the Buckeye Restaurant, when in fact it's the Buckeye Roadhouse Restaurant, and that kind of stuff still matters. So I went back and changed it. He goes, well, just make sure you read it. It's shorter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So obviously there's the need to get all this information out there faster than ever before, but how do you balance that? I mean, we've seen even you know CNN, we've seen everybody make mistakes out there. How do you make sure that you catch that it's the Buckeye Roadhouse restaurant and not just the Buckeye restaurant? Well, my secret is to write as few facts as possible. Hmm. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> um, you know, there are times when you just screw it up and you can't even help that you've screwed it up. I did a story the other day about, a, about El Nino and a drought retract something and in the process of retracting somehow even though i knew what was right i read the date wrong and it got on the air it got through everybody mm. i knew what it was they knew what it was everybody knew what it was i missed the date by a couple of years how did that happen you know we worked so fast i, w- I had, this was the day when we wanted to do and they wanted to do an el nino story and Instead of giving them one, I said, you know, I can do two. So I rushed and did two, and then, the, and then I'm cutting two on a new machine. And just, it, you know, mistakes are going to happen. We are human. We're not robots. I felt horrible about that, right? I came back into the station on vacation the next day to fix that line mm. and get it right before it ran again. I mean, it was, that was the most that's an embarrassing moment. It does happen. I mean, and sometimes you mean well, you know better, and you do it anyway. So 
maybe, I, maybe I'm getting senile. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think we all, all do it no matter what the age and, and just, like you said, the time and what you're trying to fit in that workspace, there are things that slip up. And if there aren't those filters yeah. to go through, yeah. then they get through. A guy tells me his name is Steven with a V. And, you know, you might write PH. Right. Steven with a PH. You know, and you mean well, but, you know, stuff will happen. It doesn't happen very often, okay? I respect, and, I respect that after all these years that you've been in this business, it's still, you still take it home and it bothers you and it makes you go in on your day off to change it because you that know was, that it will live forever. That, Beginning of an eight-day vacation. I knew it was gonna, no. I knew it was going to run again, and they promoted it. I just felt so bad. Right, man. I, I felt so bad. I mean, I. I it, it, it was just a little technical mistake, and it was, and it was, and you know, the pro, the reason for it was trying to make the piece better. It was going in and retracking and not bringing the script and ad-libbing the line into the booth, Got it. and then going back and retracking. And just somehow the date changed in my mind between the edit room and the booth and going back and having and, – and, and it's the kind of thing you don't double-check because you're assuming you've got it right, you know? Right. We're talking a long time about one mistake. Do you think, do you think that people getting in this business obsess over these details the way you still do? Do you think that's still ingrained in young journalists? I hope so, but I'm not going to generalize. Yeah. Um, you mentioned. Some, go ahead. Some yes. Oh, look. Some yes and some no. There are some members of, of, of the millennial generation who, are because because it's computerized, they're probably more detail oriented than we are. My generation. I mean, I've seen that over and over and over again. They cross every T. They dot every I. Those are the good ones. We have, you know, we have some of those working for us. And there are others, you know, they write me a note. They can't even get my name spelled right. <laughs> okay? So, you know, I think it's an, ind an, an individual thing. You should hope that, that we get it right. doesn't mean we will get it right. Right. Um, you mentioned that you were out with your photographer when it came to the uh, walking on water line when you saw that there. And obviously you've done amazing work as an MMJ. How do you balance that i mean are there times that you really wish you could grab the camera or i mean i, I know you're still shooting occasionally um as an mmj it, but how do you balance it's that an, it's been an evolution okay before i became an mmj in 2010 i hadn't picked up a camera for probably 30 years Thirty-one years that's how long it's since I'd shot a story. I'd, I'd learned how to shoot at the University of Missouri. I learned the basics on it. And my dad was a photographer. So uh, you probably don't know that part about me, the digression. But my dad, my dad was the first live handheld cameraman for ABC. So shooting's in my blood. Um, and I've always thought visually. So back when I had photographers, and I had some really good ones over, over the years at CBS and and a Cron and, and elsewhere. You know, the guy that taught me most of what I know is a guy named Kenny Swartz, who won NPPA Photographer of the Year two or at least three times. He taught me long form. Um, so I've always seen pictures and generally was regarded as kind of a pain by photographers who kept saying, shut up, I'm shooting it, I'm shooting it, I'm shooting it. 
but I would see like a compression shot here or a wide shot here or a sequence there, and they didn't want to hear it. And then um, we'd get in a truck, and I would have every shot locked, and I'd say, give me this shot here, give me and then some of them enjoyed it, and some of them didn't enjoy it. Some of them learned, some of them didn't. Some of them were better than others. But after a while, you got to leave that behind when you're doing two stories a day. So generally, now, having shot a lot, I wouldn't want to do daily news as an MMJ. That would be, um, I have a flipping heart attack. <laughs> that, that's what I do on a regular basis here in New York. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. <laughs> it, one a day, maybe. But, right. but not two a day and certainly not two lead stories a day. Right. Or two first block stories. They're not going to happen. That's crazy. And not to do it with any, any kind of storytelling. Uh, so I look, at this point, I respect the people I work with and don't have time to look over, over at what they're cutting. You know, we're, I'm in a truck, right? They're facing the back. I'm t- facing towards the front. If I'm going to look at this piece at all, it's going to be in a little rear view mirror that flips down. And, and frankly, while they're cutting the first piece, I'm writing the second piece and I have to have it done by the time they're ready. Mm. So, and I respect my people. Everybody has their own style. Look, I got my own. I got mine. I like to cut in phrases and clauses. You know, I like extreme wide shots. I like compression shots. I like tripods. I like good lighting. I like dramatic shots. I like details. Well, not everybody shoots that way. We're all getting it done the way we can get it done. Basically, when you're out there in the field and you've got that 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock deadline and another that falls, it's us against them and let's get it done just make it clean you know make the audio clean let's not have anything anything call attention to itself let's do the piece for the sake of the piece and move on in the best way we can we have some and we have some really good down and dirty fast efficient photographers at our tv station one of the guys i work with regularly i mean he's flipping amazing okay we couldn't hit a mountaintop a few weeks ago. We had to we had to drive 45 minutes over a mountain down the other side. We, half an hour before air, he starts cutting on a minute and 30 second story. He got it done in 20 minutes, and we made our slot. And it was clean and it looked good. You know, that's that's a that's an amazing skill. Well, that was going to be my next question. How often do you work with the same guy or crew? Yeah. I should say in general. I work with everybody once in a while. I mean, there's a guy in the East Bay who works the East Bay. Phil, Phil Dismangles, I work with Phil a lot. You know, philosophically, Phil and I don't completely agree in terms of the way we shoot. I'd shoot things a little differently sometimes. He'd probably have me write things a little differently sometimes, but we're, we're a good team. You know, he knows what I'm thinking, and I know what he's thinking. That's important. Okay? I mean, with these guys, it gets to the point that you've cut enough stories together. They know what you're talking about. They know what the shots need to be in a certain spot. And if there aren't, and, and you know, if we're lucky, we have time for a 45-second conversation over the script. Say, I'm thinking this sequence here, this sequence here, this thing here. And, and they, you know, they know my basic rules. You, you try not to repeat a sequence. You try not to, to go to the same place twice. You try to keep the piece moving forward. You know, and you try not to confuse the viewer and you try not to distract them. Get, get the darn thing done and get it out and let's move on to the next one and go home to our wives and families and whatever. Yeah. I mean, it has to be a very pragmatic deal. I mean, I'm going to digress on you. That's okay. That's what this, oh, <laughs> that, that's the beauty of this format. <laughs> <laughs> look, there, look, I've, I've been an NPPA member. I've got, you know, a few Emmy awards, a few, just a few. And, and, uh, very modest of you used to live for that kind of stuff. Right. Right. And a lot of people starting out in this business 
are basically shooting stories for their peers or to get jobs in better markets. And they're forgetting the most important people of all, and that's the viewers. The viewer, yes, I agree. Okay? Yeah. You know, they're trying to be artistic and they get obscure. Or they're trying to throw in natural sound when all it does is interrupt a sentence or a thought. And, and I mean, this, this theory is just because you, my line is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Because hmm. the viewers, like it or not, they're not watching it the way you're watching it. And they're, they're, if you're lucky, they're the, the damn things in a corner on the counter and they're cutting carrots and they're maybe listening to it more than they see it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we like to have these grand notions of what a story is and can be. And damn it, you know, I've done those stories and I care about that stuff. And I wish it was the case every time. But for the most part, we need to be clear, straightforward, efficient and clean and accurate. Get it on, get it off, tell them a little story. If you tell it well enough, maybe they'll even look at the piece for a few seconds. Is it hard to come to that realization, knowing that you love telling those feature stories, knowing the capability that you have to tell a story if given you know, a little bit more time or a little bit more uh, resources? And no, it was fine after the five years of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Only five? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that was the last one. <laughs> uh, it just comes back to this change thing. Man, that is a deep, deep question. And I don't know how, how much you want to go. Look, we all want to be recognized. We all want to be artists. I mean, I had a big argument over over the word creative on a website recently. And it went on for days. Where, you know, and I talked about this in the book where people said, how do I write more creatively? And I, and I gave them the answer. But before I used the word creative, I, you know, I don't believe in the word creative for television news anymore. Mm. Well, for, what, for what reason? Because it can't be or because? Because if you take the word create and you attach it to the word news, we're already suspect enough. So instead of creative, I've replaced the word creative, in my mind at least, with adaptive we adapt to what we find. We adapt what we find in, in a way that we tell a story with it, which is not saying that we don't use creative skills in doing so. But I like to think that we adapt our material for television. You know, we adapt it for the web. We adapt it for still photography. We adapt it for radio. We don't create. You think if that's you, because of the time that we don't have? No, I think, it, I think it's a philosophical difference. More of an ethical lines of we shouldn't be creating new news, we should be reporting it. I just think that you take the word create and you take the word news and you put them in the same sentence and you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And, right. and most people are going to disagree with that, and I understand it. And, but part of it is that they're so attached to this idea that they are creative people. And, and we are, okay? But... We're using those skills. We're not. We're not. We're not making movies. We're, we're, we are telling stories, and, and we're using our creative skills to tell stories and tell the news in the most efficient way. But I just don't like the word create. I think we adapt is just a far better, far better word. Look them up in the dictionary. The two words are very similar in terms of news, but 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 if you get to the the definition of creative in, in Webster's, it talks about making something. 
So then I got to ask you and, and hold you to, you know, I got to push you on this one then, that we were watching some of your work, obviously, before the, the penny experiment story that you did there. How do you fit that in, into your own uh, definitions of adaptive versus creative? Well, which penny story did you see? The first one or the, the second one? The one where you were leaving the penny on, with one penny, in one penny on the ground, up to 50 cents on the ground. I've done that twice. I did it first in the 1990s and then did it again. If you look at the second version, that was like the third MMJ story I ever shot. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. Well, I took an idea. I had an idea, and I did a story about it. Where did it come out of? I don't even remember. Was it creative? Yeah, I used creative processes of doing it, but I adapted on an idea. I think, I think, it, was, I think it was a story about a store that is no longer take. I remember. Oh, that was about a store that was no longer uh, doing. They doing weren't tra- taking pennies. They were rounding down to the nearest nickel. The biggest coin they took, the smallest coin they took was a nickel. It was a nickel. Yeah. So I just kind of ran with it. But I don't think that was creative. That was adapted. I took the idea and adapted it and worked with it. Call it creative, call it adaptive, call it whatever you want. I'm just saying the word creative is a buzzword. Hmm. It was probably, you know, it was a creative idea, but I just like it. It's just cleaner. It's safer. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to being an MMJ, I mean, do you, do you do it at all? Like how often do you do it, if at all, now, today? Uh, well, there's a camera in the back of the car every day. The last complete story I shot is an MMJ. It was about a year ago. So are there times that you shoot elements for stories? Shoot an element here and an element there. I was supposed to shoot an MMJ story a couple of weeks ago, and then um, then it rained on us, so that wasn't going to happen. There's a whole oh, there's and, and the office says they, they want more of these stories, and I'm, I'm going to hold them to it. Um, but... Um, I was doing two a week for a while there, three a week, and they were, you know, they were special segment stories. They just don't do features at this place anymore. They do. They want hard news. They want breaking news and weather. And, and, you know, there's an adage in this business. It's better to please your boss before you please yourself. (laughs) That's, and that's why you've never been fired short of sleeping through the newscast. (laughs) The newscast. Yeah. I, I don't know. All right. Um, so, know, so wait. Let me, let me just ask you here because of, of what you just said. Um, wait. Okay. No, there are a lot of really good people that do get fired for no good reason. Mm. I've been late. Okay, but I've, I've never been fired. So yeah, do I want to shoot more MMJ stories? Yes. I'm not a very good MMJ. The world is full of better MMJs. The only the only good part about being an MMJ is that it, it enabled it enabled us to, to put some of those stories on the air when, because we have a, a small photography staff. We also have a fairly small reporting staff. So if they're not going to tie up two resources to get one of these things done, if, if you can do everything, well, they're, they're going to take advantage of it. And, you know, I embraced it. Most of our reporting staff did not embrace it. Uh, but, no, I, I wish I could do more. There are about five on my list I'm dying to do right now. And maybe we'll get to them. But the camera's in the car. I shoot elements a couple of times a week, do interviews a couple of times a week. And then, um, actually, no, I did an MMJ story about three weeks ago, maybe. Okay. It was just a basic daily news story. And then I got it in the van and somebody else cut it. So when you do an MMJ story, do you, do you ever edit your own pieces? Or yes. You, oh. 
I prefer to. But um, if it's a daily news story, that's probably not going to happen because they're going to want two versions of it. So, you know, like, uh, if the camera can't get there, I'll go out there and I'll start shooting on it. And then Phil or whoever it is arrives and then they'll pick up with the shooting and and finish it off. And then they'll cut it. You mentioned that you took to picking up the camera, whereas some of your colleagues did it. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of people who are getting into this business think I'm going to have to start out as an MMJ, but still have aspirations of becoming uh, traditional in the terms of the word reporter uh, and putting down that camera or handing it off to someone else. I mean, what what is it that makes you want to pick it up where others may not? I'm a photographer at heart. Hmm. I've always been a photographer at heart. You know, my dad was a photographer he had me in a dark room at 11 years old if you were to follow my twitter feed or my facebook feed every day you'd see that it's nothing but still photographs i'm still even though i'm not mmjing every day i have a camera with me every day a still camera either a either a nikon or a little fuji and i'm constantly taking still pictures of stories so i keep my hand in it so why what was the initial question why how did i get into it and other people didn't yeah why why do you think that you took to it and i think you answered it i mean just the fact some people are visual, some people aren't. Mm. I was raised in this business by photographers. So it's second nature. Mm. For a lot of others, it wasn't. And then there's, for a lot of others, there is a stigma that I'm better than this. You know, especially at a larger market TV station. I shouldn't have to shoot my own stories. You know, I need to be a reporter full time. Well, this whole business has changed. You know, we, we aren't just, we aren't just reporters anymore okay you know if, if we're doing our job the way we need to do it these days we're tweeting we're, we're facebooking we're we're interacting with people on twitter we're we're doing not one story a day or in my case at cbs i was doing one story a week now we're doing two stories a day sometimes three okay? wait one i'm sorry i just got je- i just got jealous there one one story a week when you were at the network yeah it was a great gig <laughs> Um, and you had time, clearly. Oh, I had a, an unlimited budget and an expense account. And uh, I was doing the, the stories for CBS This Morning. The segment was called Only in America. And, and, and they basically said, what do you want to do? Go do it. Every week I'd call the office. Oh, let's go over here. Let's talk to the potato chip lady. We'd get in an airplane. We'd fly and talk to the potato chip lady. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's awesome. That's awesome. It would, and then these stories would run four or five minutes. I once did five and a half minutes on a woman who... Who blows herself up in a box? <laughs> and it's a it's a great story, Dynamite Lady. <laughs> Dynamite. Another story. One of my faves about a guy about a guy who um, um, <laughs> he lives in a small town in Texas, and he got robbed so many times that he stopped locking the door. Figured three, <laughs> three and a that guy. And he, was a, and he was a great subject. I mean, that's when you really get into who people are and, and what makes them tick. I mean, that was a story in the telling, right? And, yeah, they bought that. But that was a different time. And, and I think the world at that point, our audience, had a different attention. But we don't have that attention span anymore, at least not the newer generation. They're not into the telling. They, you know, give it to me in 140 characters. Tell me what I need to know. You know, where's the curiosity these days? Some stories are in the telling, but now they want them told in a minute 15 or a minute 30. So a lot of the surprise, a lot of that other stuff that we value so much has gone out the window. You need to be direct and give them what they want. 
Ultimately, although this is a calling, do this enough years, you're earning a living. And earning a living is important in this business if you want to keep at it. I mean, most people don't make enough in their jobs to earn a living, buy a house, raise a family, put their kids in college, and retire. Now, that stuff's going away. Hmm. So do you mean, so do you feel the attention span of the viewers has gone away as well? Is that why? Or is it management? I, yeah, hold on. My phone's ringing. Okay. My wife got Hold okay. on. No worries. Got to answer the boss. 1-800 numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you ever picked up a 1-8? Nope. Really? <laughs> <laughs> You ever picked up a 1-800 number just to give him a bad time? Oh, yeah, like uh-huh. Seinfeld. How about I call you back during dinner? <laughs> you know you know what will make them crazy every time? You, ever, you know what get them every time? Go ahead. It's like nothing to do and you got no time to kill and they want to ask your opinion. Just tell them you're not qualified. <laughs> to give your own opinion? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, can't answer that question. I'm not qualified. Why aren't you qualified? I'm not qualified to tell you. It goes on and on and on. I'm not qualified. How many times have you used that one? Three or four times. All right. I'm not qualified. Oh, my goodness. And right now you're infringing on my privacy when you ask why I'm not qualified. <laughs> Sounds like HIPAA, HIPAA's going to get involved. And then you got to talk to your therapist. Yeah. Where were we? What was the quote? <laughs> we were talking about attention spans. <laughs> oddly enough. <laughs> oh man! So we, yeah. whether it was on the the shrinking tension attention span on the part of the viewer or a part of our management. <laughs> well, seems to me that if people are willing to watch movies, they ought to be willing to watch TV stories. But. I don't know that anyone is willing in a lot of these big companies now to take the risk to assume more intelligence in some of these parts of these viewers. I don't know how to say this without getting in trouble. How about, I think that, yeah, so you I, – go ahead. I don't – look, I mean I don't necessarily blame management of TV stations for the content that, that they deem that we cover. First of all, look, they have limited resources. They got to they got to get the easy basis. They got to they got to get the stuff they got to get to. Okay? And 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 I don't think they want to challenge viewers. So, is it the viewer's fault or is it our fault? It's kind of like the chicken or the egg. Yes. Okay? Are the, is it that the viewers don't really want anything better or we don't want to give anything better to the viewers? I don't know what it is. But they want a faster-paced newscast. They um the, the, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you. Do the viewers have a shorter attention span? Yes. Did they ever have an attention span? Yes. Do they know how to watch a television news story? No. Even, even when you show them a great story, like, like my father-in-law came over once, and my wife wanted to show this before we're married, right? And she wants to, show, wants to impress the, the future in-laws with... With with what great stuff her husband is doing, and I start showing them the story, right? And within like ten seconds, over this really good writing, they go, "Oh yeah, we know somebody like that." And they're and they're talking to each other about this story that's running. Mm. You know, they're not so watching. They're not, I got you. They're not really attention to it. Yeah, a little a little thing in a box. Yeah. Attention. I know you're going to make an edit here. Attention spans, and, and maybe this future generation. Is 
is more direct. Maybe, maybe they got less time for BS. Um, maybe they don't know what they're missing. I don't know. But does anybody really pay attention to the news anyway? Really? How much do they really watch? If you ask the average person at the end of a newscast, tell me about four of the stories, would they really know? Yeah, the analogy is, um, I mean, what? <laughs> You're popular. Yeah, man. Is that a house phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't know. I don't know that they that they know how to watch, but, but and whether they don't is that our failing or is it their failing, right. or is it just everything in in this world? I mean, with all the screens we deal with, we're constantly going from screen to screen to screen. How many people even read a book anymore, from cover to cover? We're we're just constantly distracted. There's so much stuff going on. So how, how do you view, view how do you view news then? Like, I know where I know where I was going. I was saying that a lot of people probably don't watch the news the way we think they do. And, and the analogy, and I make this in the book. I ask people, when I, and I travel around the country a lot and give speeches still. And I say, okay, remember the last auto accident you passed? And they kind of go, yeah, vaguely. Can you tell me what kind of car it was? Or, and, and most of the time, they, it's like, yeah, there was an, uh, yeah, it was an accident. And that's all they remember. And, and, um, and that's sort of the way people watch television news. I mean, these stories are like car accidents passing on the freeway. They're not of car accidents, but they're just something kind of passing peripherally unless it affects them. Now, if it, and I, the question they use is, so if you recognize that car as somebody you knew or cared about, would you remember that car accident more? Well, yeah. So the question is, how do we do stories that people relate to, that have universal appeal? Okay, That's the key to making people watch a newscast and actually pay attention to it and not have a short attention span. How do we do that? Uh, well, then it comes back to the writing about life and writing about people again, writing about this this universal appeal theory that I, I keep coming up with. You know, um, a friend of mine named Brian Kubler, a very good reporter in Baltimore, back when he was in Memphis, Tennessee, he sent me a story. He said, this is the best thing I've ever done. I'm going to get an Emmy with this. I'm going to get a job with the network of this. And I looked at it. He this is such a great get. Everybody in town thinks I kick butt. So he sends me the story, and I said, Brian, you're not going to win an Emmy with that. In fact, you might not even get a job with that. And he goes, why? And I said, because it required too much local knowledge. Too much local knowledge. So that you're starting from a place that people haven't been to yet, and then you're moving on from there. This whole universal appeal thing, it really just goes back to the news as people thing. So do you, do you think we get in the way then? Yeah. Do you think we get in the way too much then? Do we get in the way? Yeah, I mean, seemingly, it, it seems like we're talking, what you're talking about is, you know, universal truths and, and, and dealings that that every common person is, is coming across, and, and we're just maybe well, the, overcomplicating it. We do the stories we think the viewers want. We do the stories we think our bosses want. Our stories, our bosses send us the stories we think the viewers want, but then we fail to make the connection. Look, you can do any story about anything, and you can make it relevant if you do it right. Okay, if you talk about the human impact or the human emotion, whatever it is, for every crime, there is a victim. For every victim, there is passion. How often do you see that passion in a news story, even on a dumb crime story? How often do you see passion? Hardly ever. Really? You get the, or you get the DA. Okay? You know, uh, I mean, 
we need to learn how to tell stories and look at look at news events as stories, as a continuum. Like somebody said to me today, I came back and and there was not, there's nothing happening. As a lion, reporters like to use a lot when they come back. There's no way to tell a story. There was nothing happening. Why not? Well, we just sat there in the room and we waited and nobody showed up. Well, excuse me, but something was happening. Was there a doorknob that didn't move? Did you shoot that doorknob that didn't move? Was there a clock that was ticking? Did you shoot that clock that was ticking? Did you shoot the empty hallway outside? Even when nothing is happening, something is happening. And reporters don't get that. And that's how you tell the human story. So there's a guy, they send you to cover a protest in front of City Hall, and only one guy shows up, and there's no audience, and it was supposed to be a big audience. Is nothing happening? No, something happened. That's this guy point. came to give a conference or do whatever, and, on, and nobody showed up. Well, that's your story. We're looking so hard to find these stories that we missed the darn stuff that's right in front of our nose. See what I'm getting at? We don't tell those stories that way. And every single story is that way. Okay, people say, how do I tell a good news story? How can you be a feature guy and then you turn around and now you're a hard news guy? How do you make that transition? Because at heart, I'm still a feature guy. The one question I always ask going into every story, no matter what it is, hard news, feature, breaking news, the first question in my mind is, What's happening? Hey everyone, Joe Masseri here one more time. I just want to remind you that you can head over to bibmedia.tv. That's B-I-B media.tv for any of the information that Wayne might have talked about here on the podcast so far. And want to remind you that this is part one of two. We will have part two for you out next week. So please subscribe on iTunes if you're interested in this. And you can check out some of the other interviews we've conducted here at Broadcasting in Black and White up to this point. As always, thank you for listening and tell a friend if you enjoyed this. Sharing is caring after all. Have a good one, guys.